So the last time I was up here in the pulpit, uh, it was just last December, the only thing that kind of most of you remembered uh, wasn't on the passage on Psalm 99, uh, but it was on ChatGPT. So because after I did the, uh, <laughs> the sermon, many of you came up to me thinking that I knew a lot about ChatGPT, which I didn't. Uh, but, <laughs> um, but, well, of course, we, we all know how much, uh, you know, the technology has progressed over the past year, and, and now everybody knows about it, right? Um, and it's just amazing, you know, how, how from zero to, you know, millions or even billions of users in just one year, uh, that's, that's really amazing. But is it actually that amazing? Because... There's this phenomenon in the tech industry, um, which is called Moore's Law. I don't know if you know, if you know about it, M-O-O-R-E-S. And this is when the driving force of uh, you know, technological advancements over the past 60 years. Because you see, in 1965, Gordon Moore, the founder or one of the co-founders of Intel, he made an observation that you know, over the past few years, you know, before 1965, he made that observation that uh, you know, the computing power um, of, of, of you know, integrated circuits at that time roughly would double every two years. And so from 1965, 60 years later until now, so if you double that, you can see that what you hold in your hand today is a million times more powerful than what was sent up to the moon in 1969. That's amazing, isn't it? It's a million times more powerful than what it was in 1969. So what is driving this, this, enhance, this advancement? I mean, it wasn't just scientists and engineers that were sitting in their labs and, and discovering new things every two years. It can't be. Dr. Moore and his, his colleagues were among the first to actually combine technology and business together. You know, Moore's law actually, you know, when he published that, you know, it drove competitors, companies in that race or in that rat race, you know, which we are all in right now. And to be the first company to release the newest technology, you know, resulting in really rapid development of computer technology. So in a sense, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because if you predict something and then everybody starts to go for it, you get it, right? Uh, you know, R&D or, or companies really invest in, in R&D and, and they, they really expect that the profits that they will get you know, from this R&D will actually uh, far outstrip than the cost that, uh, that actually uh, went into developing this new technology. And it's precisely this demand for new and better things that's, that's driving this. I mean, if, you know, who in this room have not had the feeling that they needed a new phone or the latest gadgets? It's man's insatiable demand and need for better and faster and more efficient things that are driving this. In fact, this economic element of, of Moore's law, uh, especially the success of Silicon Valley companies, right, has, has made this really an attractive standard, not just in the tech industry, but in, in every industry in the world, in every, in, in every society of the world as well. Everywhere we look, there is this expectation right, that it has to be progress. And this is fueling this insatiable demand right, that has become a very key aspect to our, to our lives. I mean, the benefits of technology are, are really undeniable. It has enabled us to live you know, much more comfortable lives, enabled us to communicate with people thousands of miles away, just at a drop of a hat. And of course, the economic benefits are, are extraordinary. 
But I wonder how much of what you know, is driving us today is, is that insatiable desire for more. I think this morning as we continue in our study of Hebrews, we're going to be challenged uh, to pursue something different. Pursue something different than advancement, than progress. We're going to think about the topic of contentment. What does it look like for you and me to be, to be content? What are our primary motivations for, for pursuing the things that we are pursuing in life? How do we align it with what God desires for our lives? You know, as with all good things given by God, we have this tendency to, to distort it, to pursue it for our own selfish desires. And by doing that, we sin against God. You know, take, for example, sex, money, power. These are the topics that are covered by the author of Hebrews in, that, in this last chapter, chapter 13. It's very practical in this, in this particular chapter. And these three, three things are actually good things given by God. And if used in a way that God has designed for it to be exercised and for it to be utilized, then it is good. But if we abuse it, if we idolize it, then we fall into this trap of sin and you know, all these unwanted consequences. And so if you are here for the first time, we are really coming to the end of our sermon series on the book of Hebrews. So we've covered 12 chapters so far, and we are now on the last chapter, uh, 13. And last week, Pastor Mark covered uh, verses 1 to 4 of uh, chapter 13, which talked about the duties of love, uh, which included brotherly love, loving of strangers, loving those who are suffering and those who are persecuted, and love in the context of marriage. He actually gave a very good summary of the first 12 chapters of the book, which I think bears repeating again if you were not here or if you forgot. First chapter, the first 12 chapters can be summarized as three points, three Gs. A great salvation, a grueling endurance, and a glorious future. And because of this understanding, how does this apply to Christians? That's what chapter 13 is all about. Verses 1 to 4 was covered by Pastor Mark, and now we'll cover verses 5 to 6, just two verses. And let me read that for us. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 and 6. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. So if you're taking notes, here's the big idea of our text today. The big idea is quite simple. It's just contentment is worth pursuing. Contentment is worth pursuing. And we're going to look at this point, uh, this contentment, this topic of contentment in three points. First point, from verse 5, the first part of verse 5, it says, pursue contentment by freeing our lives from the love of money. And second half of verse 5, pursue contentment by resting in God's presence. And verse 6, pursue contentment by confessing our confidence in God's provision and help. So let's just dive in. First point, pursuing contentment by freeing our lives from the love of money. Listen to what uh, the author says here. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. 
So if you just look at it, there are actually two commands here, right? One sort of stated in the negative, which is keep your life free or basically do not love money. And the second command, be content, stated in the positive way. These are actually very difficult commands. If we are honest with ourselves, we'll find it quite difficult to follow and also to know whether or not we are actually following it. Because there's no objective way or objective yardstick which we can kind of measure this. And if we do, then God forbid, you know, we will be measuring ourselves and become like the Pharisees. But let's look at this first command. Keep your life free from the love of money. The, the Greek translation literally means let your manner of life be free from the love of silver. Translated as money. The New King James translates this as let your conduct be without covetousness. Yet another translation says make sure your character is free from the love of money. So in other words, our lifestyle, our conduct, our character should not show that we love money. But what is, what is love of money? I mean, covetousness is, is another word that was translated, um, you know, used to be translated for the, for the love of money. We are also reminded uh, in the 10th commandment, right, do not covet your neighbor's wife and your neighbor's house. Covetousness is really loving things that really do not belong to us. And in a sense, money doesn't really belong to us. It belongs to, to God. But if, you, if you've been a Christian long enough, you know the subtle difference right, between love of money and money itself. It is not money that is bad, but it's the love of money. And we are called to guard against that. So in, in 1 Timothy 6 verse 10, Paul says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. It's 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. So in other words, loving money is the source of all kinds of problems. When, when money is the controlling factor in, in all our time that is spent, in all our decision-making, and in all our heart's desire, that's when we all be in trouble. Jesus said, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money at the same time. There's, there's nothing against money itself, but it's really our relationship with money that, that is the issue. And you know, it can manifest in many different forms. It can manifest in us becoming miserly, like I am. It could be, you know, you're holding on too tightly to money. You know, money is your security instead of the Lord. My wife and kids can testify to that. I, I struggle with, uh, you know, being giam siap, kuhon, you know, in, in Cantonese. Uh, to, to be honest, early in my Christian life, I, I struggled with, with tithing because I felt that I was barely making ends meet and I needed to save uh, for my future, and this was before I got married even. But the Lord helped me to see that whatever I have was really given by Him, and that the security I had in the money that I had at the time could easily be wiped out. 
but most of it was were, were in stocks and they were wiped out in the 2000 uh, you know financial crisis but or dot com boom i've also learned that if we if, if god has blessed us richly it is really for the purpose of blessing others through us what has helped me is that if i have been blessed by the lord materially i try to make it a point to deliberately ask this question of how can I use part of it to bless others and then really act on it? This has helped me over the, over the years. On the other hand, you know, just talking about money and how our relationship can be, and if you're like miserly, on the other hand, if you're spending money responsibly, you know, it could be that you are pursuing a lot of worldly pleasures and, and that money is just your means of attaining uh, these worldly things. It also doesn't matter if you are rich or if you're poor. A person can be poor and still be in love with the money that they don't have, just as easily as a person who is rich can be in love with the money that they do have. I mean, the Bible contains many instances of godly people who are rich. Take, for instance, Abraham, even Job in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, uh, you know, we hear of Joseph of Arimathea who provided the tomb, or his, his own tomb, for Jesus' burial. He was a rich man. You read many others who were rich in, in the book of Acts as well. So what are the, the dangers of loving money that you know, the writer is trying to you know, warn us about? And why is he so concerned about this? I think I can, I can suggest three. First, directly in the immediate context of this passage, first danger is that we are unable to love others if, if we love money. Remember from the previous sermon, Pastor Mark talked about the actions and the duties of love in verses 1 to 4. Brotherly love, you know, hospitality to strangers, loving those who are suffering, <clears throat> and love in the context of marriage. It's impossible to do these things um, when, some, when someone loves money. Those who, who love money will either be too busy making money or will not be generous enough uh, with their money and will not be generous enough with their time, actually, to love others. Perhaps it was the hardship that the Jewish audience of this book right, had, had to endure. Remember in, in, in chapter 10, um, many of the, 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 the believers then had, had suffered loss of property and loss of possessions. There could have been a tendency to want to kind of protect this thing from happening again. And, and they might be um, you know, pursuing security in, in material wealth rather than in Jesus Christ. Folks, the, co the concern for material wealth can really sidetrack us from, from loving one another in the body. Are we prioritizing this love of one another over the love of money, over the pursuit of wealth? I think perhaps we can actively look out for brothers and sisters in our congregation who need financial help. You know, ask the elders or ask Pastor Tian Chai, who's in charge of member care, is, is, is there any help that's needed? financially from anyone in church. Or ask the missions committee if, if you know, there's any missions initiative that need more uh, financial support. Or even could be ad hoc uh, needs that come up you know, when there are emergencies or, or tragedies or, or wars that, that's going on right now that happen beyond our shores. Could find out and act on it. How can we come alongside the church in, in, in providing these financial needs? So first point is, you know, in terms of the dangers, is, is 
we are unable to love others if we love money. The second danger of, of loving money is it's really rejecting God. What do I mean by that? Let me read from Job chapter 31, verses 24 to 28. Job chapter 31, verses 24 to 28. I've made, my, I've made gold my trust. If I have made gold my trust, or called fine gold my confidence, if I rejoice because my wealth was abundant, or because my hand had found much, if I've looked at the sun when it shone, or the moon moving in splendor, and my heart had been secretly enticed, and my mouth has kissed my hand, this also would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges. For I have been false to God above. The NIV translate being false to God above as being unfaithful. In other words, this is rejecting God. This is Job, who had all the riches that God blessed him with. And yet when God allowed these riches to be taken away, he realized that all these came from God. And if he trusted in his gold or in his wealth, he has already made an idol out of it and have rejected God and sinned against him and been false to God above. We see warnings like this in, in Job all, all throughout Scripture. You may remember that uh, you know, Jesus in the parable of the sower, like the seed uh, that was sowed among the thorns, one person's faith in, in the Word of God can be snuffed out by the deceitfulness of, of riches. Or the rich young ruler in, in Mark chapter 10, he wanted to follow Jesus, but in the end he walked away sad because we are told that he couldn't let go of all his possessions, which Jesus was asking him to do. Folks, the, the danger of loving money more than God is that we will not inherit his kingdom because we are rejecting him. The third danger is, of loving money is it leaves us empty and unsatisfied. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. We'll, we'll never be satisfied with more money. I mean, in other words, we'll, we'll never be content with, with money because we we'll always want more. It's, it's like the law of diminishing returns. Kind of like the Moore's law that we talked about, right? We'll never be satisfied with that new iPhone. We'll never be satisfied with that new car. We, we might be, you know, for the first two months, and then after that, we need a new iPhone. That's what's driving the entire world economy. It's, it's man's insatiable appetite for more. Craving for, for more money or more stuff is indeed vanity, as, as Ecclesiastes tells us. There is no ultimate satisfaction when we pursue wealth. It's all vanity. So the first command told us not to love money. The second one says to be content with what we have. What does being content mean? Well, at first glance, we might think that it means that we are being you know, satisfied and happy with what we currently have materially. 
I think the contentment that the writer is talking about here runs much deeper than just mere material things. And that's why contentment is worth pursuing, and that's our main idea of these two verses that we're looking at today. The Apostle Paul, uh, in in Philippians 4, this is a very famous passage on, on contentment. He says, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to, be, how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Notice here that Paul's contentment doesn't depend on how much he has or what circumstances he was in because he can do all things. He can endure all things through Christ who strengthens him. It helps to remember that Paul was writing this while he was in prison, and yet he said he was content. He had nothing. He was persecuted for the gospel and then sent to prison, yet he was satisfied because he, has, he says he has learned the secret. And what's that secret? He can be content because of Jesus Christ. But also note that the being content, there's an active verb to be verb, to be content. That's something that needs to be done. You know, in Paul's case, he said he had to learn to be content. In other words, he, to pursue contentment. Friends, being, being content is not having a laissez-faire attitude towards life. It's, it's not being lazy. Paul worked hard. He worked hard for the gospel. He was a tent maker. He was diligent and yet he was content because of his laser-focused target of the gospel in all that he is doing. The Bible tells us to, to work diligently in many places, but it also tells us to be content. And, the, and friends, these two things are not incompatible. So to recap, we, we have covered these two commands, right? You know, one is not loving money, and then the second one, be content. And then also consider the dangers that we face if we don't follow that. We need to ask God to help us to work at applying this. How do we apply this? I think let's consider a few points, a few questions that we can consider. Number one, is is our time taken up by our work or by maintaining our material possessions that we neglect to minister to others and be part of the local body of Jesus Christ? I mean, we all in Singapore, we lead very busy lives, right? I mean, the, the companies or the corporations that we work for are all entrenched in trying to meet this target of, of Moore's Law, but we do need to take stock on the use of our time in pursuing the things that, we, that will have everlasting value. Are we storing up treasures in heaven instead of storing up treasures that will rust and that moth will destroy? Second question, are we holding on too tightly to our material possessions that we are unable to use it to bless others? Whether it be the use of our homes to meet practical needs or other material possessions that that we have for those who are in need. Folks, let's think about how we can use the material blessings that God has given us to bless others. It could be as simple as as, as even cooking a meal for families who are in need during times of emergency. Like what we heard in the sharing from the from the Yo family a, a few weeks ago. 
or, or maybe even lending your car, if you're so blessed with one, to those who need it for a period of time. It, it's, it's really a good way to bless others and at the same time allow us to really put to practice the idea of not holding too tightly to our material possessions, given how expensive cars are. How, how tightly are we holding on to our money? Are we holding off tithing until you know, we have achieved a certain level of income? Folks, we, we, we've seen in Ecclesiastes 5 verse 10, there will never be enough money. There's a movie, by the way, in Singapore, right? Money no enough. I mean, of course, there will be seasons in our life when, when money, money is tight, but perhaps it's, it's time to consider what our relationship with money is like. I, I like this quote from Augustine. It says, put your hand in your purse in such a way that you release your heart from it. Put your hand in your wallet, in your purse, in a way that you will release your heart from it. The second half of verse 5, and that leads us to point 2, is really to pursue contentment by, by resting in God's presence. Second half of verse 5 says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Friends, this is what God has promised, that he will not leave us, he will not forsake us, and you know the concept of God's everlasting presence is, is such a powerful concept in, in both the New and the Old Testaments. It's not entirely clear where this quotation came from in verse 5b, uh, but it may be loosely taken from 30, uh, Deuteronomy 31 verse 6, which says, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Similarly, in, in Joshua chapter 1, verse 5 to 6, that was read to us by Corinne just now. It's also a similar passage in which the Lord spoke to Joshua, assuring him that God will not forsake him and will fulfill all promises given to Moses, even after Moses' death. In, in the New Testament, Jesus also assures us of the same thing. At the end of Matthew's Gospel, the Great Commission, he says, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The original Greek text of, of verse 5b, or the second half of verse 5, there are actually five negatives in, in that statement, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, which actually conveys a, a very, very strongly that God will surely not leave, will surely be with us always. This doesn't get uh, you know, translated into the English language that strongly, I will not forsake you, or, or I will not leave you, nor forsake you. But Charles Spurgeon, that, that uh, famous English preacher, when he preached uh, this very text in Hebrews 13, verse 5, he titled this sermon, he titled it, Never, 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 five times, never. You, you can find it, you can look it up on the internet, you can search on podcasts, you can listen to it, you can read it. I, I urge you to read it because, uh, you know, listening to some guy reading off uh, Sermon Spurgeon's, I mean Spurgeon's sermons, um, it's a little bit weird. You just read it. But 
in, 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 this, in that sermon, he quoted this hymn that we often sing, and I'm sure you know it. It says, That soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Friends, I don't know about you, but you know, the idea of God you know, not, not leaving us, nor not forsake us, sometimes doesn't really cause me to think twice. And we take it for granted. But as I was preparing for this sermon, it, it really struck me. Do you know that without the presence of God, I mean, we all won't be here. We'll all be dead. If God is not present and in control of everything, the whole universe will not hold together. I mean, for physics buffs, 9.81 meters per second squared, that's the gravitational constant. If it was just off by 0.0001%, we all won't exist. If God had left us to our own devices and forsaken us, we, we all would be slaves to, to our own sin with, with no way out. If, if God has forsaken us, He would not have sent His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, to come and live the life that we should have lived and to die the death that we should have died. It's from Tim Keller, not me. Our contentment lies in, in our resting on, on God's presence in our lives. In no situation would God leave us, and in no situation He will forsake us. If we rely on anything else to get security and comfort, we will be left really sorely disappointed. Because nothing can, can satiate our hearts, can satisfy our hearts, except for His love and His presence in our lives. Folks, every time we are, we are tempted to be discontent or not satisfied with how we are doing materially or how things are going for in our career, remind ourselves where we would be without God. Every time we fear that, you know, what will happen in our future and, and start hoarding our resources and money to hedge against these uncertainties, look to God. Rest on His unfailing promise. A God who is faithful has, has promised us that He never forsakes us. That should be sufficient enough for us. Moses, he knew this very well. In, in Exodus 33, I don't know if you remember, but you can look it up later on. Because of the disobedience of, of the Israelites, God was not going to be present with them when they conquered Canaan, you know, which was the land that was promised to them. God would still fulfill His promise, of giving them the land, but he himself will not be with them because he said, you know, you guys are stiff-necked people, I won't be with you. To be honest, what would you have done in, in that situation? I was thinking to myself, if I'm honest, sometimes I feel, yeah, isn't that good? Boating who? No government. Sorry for the Singlish. But, I mean, if you could conquer the land without God being there and... and and dictating what we, would, we, can, you know, what we can do with our lives, what we cannot do with our lives. That's good, right? But Moses didn't think so. He insisted that God's presence be with them, and, and he pleaded with God, and of course, God relented. You see, even though God had promised that they would still conquer Canaan and get all the material blessings, Moses wasn't content. He knew the ultimate joy and contentment lies in, in God alone. And, and the relationship that he had with God. 
Friends, how do we remember God's presence and not take Him for granted? I think we need to cultivate that relationship with Him. A relationship with God needs to be nurtured, cultivated. We need to start our day by communing with Him or, or end our day doing the same thing. Whenever we feel tempted, we feel anxious, we need to pray. We need to acknowledge the difficulty that we are facing, acknowledge it to Him, lay it at His feet, and confess that He is indeed a sovereign God who is in control of everything. And even, even in our current difficult circumstances. Friends, in, in, in our busy Singapore lives, we need to set aside time to rest, find time to, to meditate on His Word, reconnect with Him. Don't waste your leave that you're entitled to. I'm actually speaking to myself. Use it, use it wisely. Use it wisely to rest, to meditate on His goodness. Use it to remind ourselves of the gospel. We will find contentment in Him. I'm quoting another Augustine statement here. He says, O Lord, Thou hast made us for Thyself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in Thee. Our hearts are restless until they rest in Thee. We move on to verse 6, which is point 3. Pursue contentment by confessing our confidence in God's provision and help. Verse 6 says, So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The author of Hebrews has been teaching us how to interpret and, and meditate on, on the Psalms. And he does it here again. Psalm 118. That was read to us as the call to worship just now as well. The writer here is, is urging his audience to apply these Psalms into their current situation. Remember the, 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 the Jewish audience in this, in this letter, in this book, were facing persecution. They had their property taken away, and yet the writer is asking them to be content with what they have. Notice that there is a declarative element in this verse. It says, so we can confidently say. By declaring that and and acknowledging that God is, is their helper, this psalm recalls how God has been faithful in the past in answering their prayers during their times of distress and how the Lord had given them victory over their enemies. Recalling these things from the past allows them to confidently say that the Lord is indeed their helper and they shall not fear anything, including the fear of man. What can man do to me? That's a rhetorical question. And it almost seems like you know, a taunting and, and a boasting. But such is the confidence of the psalmist in Psalm 118. That the writer wants to instill in, in his readers in Hebrews. Such confidence in the face of severe persecution and challenges is because God has done it before and he can certainly do it this time. And so they can be content in whatever situation that the Lord brings upon them. The first part of verse 6 says, So we 
can confidently say. There is a, a communal aspect, right? We can confidently say. There's a sense that this, the, the writer is asking them to declare and to confess this truth together and re- reiterate this truth to one another. That's why the writer commands in, uh, in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, right, to consider how to spur one another to love and good deeds and to continue meeting together. To declare and to confidently say together that He is our helper. Friends, you know that uh, you know, when we are with different groups of people, we can be influenced by them. You know, our worldview, our, our thinking can be really influenced uh, by them. You know, for me, whenever I'm with people who keep talking about the stock market, or with people who talk about investments, and at my age, people who talk about retirement, I always come out of these conversations feeling that a little bit discontent, a little bit worried. Do I have enough money? Have I planned enough for my retirement? I get discontent. I, I start to focus on my own preparedness for, for retirement. Do I have enough save for the rainiest of rainy days? Friends, Hebrews is telling us to surround ourselves with people who will confidently say together that the Lord is indeed our helper and that we shall not fear because our God will forsake us, will not forsake us. Friends, what do, what do we do when we, we meet together? Do we encourage one another? Do we remind one another about the truth of God or about God's faithfulness? Do we encourage one another to think about what is the right perspective to have in this world? Or do we talk mostly about the high COE prices, the high property prices, retirement planning? Nothing wrong with, with, with these and we should be planning and, and preparing ourselves. You know, Proverbs thirteen sixteen says, Every prudent man acts with knowledge, but a fool flaunts his folly. Friends, planning and being content can coexist together. If all we do is talk about high COE prices, high property prices, then, then we're missing out on the confidence and contentment that will arise when we remind ourselves of who we really are and where our true future lies on, on what God has promised. I mean, I'm certainly guilty of that, and even in my own conversations with my family members, you know, let alone with uh, members of the church. But friends, let's hold each other accountable and remind each other about the confidence and the contentment that we can find only in God through Jesus Christ alone. Friends, we, we've talked about how contentment can be, cannot, can be found not in the love of, of money, but resting in the presence of God and His promises, as well as in declaring and confessing our confidence in His help and provision. But friends, our ultimate contentment can only be found in Jesus Christ. That's because God's promises and His presence, and they're all fulfilled in Jesus Christ alone. The peace, of, uh, the peace with God that, that we have and the presence of God that, that we have with us is ultimately bought by Jesus' blood on the cross. Our sins have alienated us from, from God because He is holy and we are not. 
Therefore, God's presence among us is based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ and not on our own. And so when God sees us, He sees Christ because we have trusted in Him by faith. If, if we understand that we deserve nothing and now that we have everything because of Jesus Christ, then contentment is a natural outcome, isn't it? We can confidently declare that God is our helper and that we fear no man because Christ accomplished for us what we could not, have, we could not do. We do not have to, f- to fear because it's not based on our own performance or our own merit, but solely on Christ's merit alone. That's true contentment. And if you are here for the first time and you're not yet a believer, let me urge you to consider Jesus Christ. Look no further than, than Jesus for the source of your ultimate contentment. As we have seen, nothing in this world will satisfy our deep, insatiable need except for Jesus Christ, who has fulfilled our biggest need and desire. And feel free to come to talk to one of our pastors or elders or someone you know in this church. If you have any questions, we'd be happy to, to answer any queries you may have regarding our faith in Jesus Christ and where that true source of contentment comes from. Friends, in the beginning, we, we talk about Moore's Law and you know, the, how insatiable the desire is that drives modern people. As believers, we, we honor God by working hard, as Paul has demonstrated to us, and doing our best for His glory here on earth. But brothers and sisters, we, let's not forget that we serve our God who is in heaven. He is Himself the most content of all beings, and through Christ we are His children. And He invites us to rest in Him. He commands us to keep our lives free from the love of money. He tells us to be content with what we have. But He gives us what we need to keep those two commands. He gives us His presence and He promises that He is our helper. There's nothing more that men would want. There's nothing more that we can hope for. And that's enough.